welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I am bringing to you another expert podcast, and this is the second occupational therapist I'll have uh, coming in today, but she is a specialist in aging in place, home design, um, home evaluations, etc. So I'm really happy to have you. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Very good. Thanks for being here. I'm a big fan of OTs. My PT friends are going to be mad that this is a second OT before I've had a PT on <laughs> it's the podcast. The yeah. Right. But we always talk about ADLs and home environments. And I think PT's eyes glaze over physical uh-huh. therapists if you're not in the field. So physical therapists are more about strength and ambulation and, and being buff, I think. Yep. Um, so <laughs> occupational therapists will do more of like the cognitive and day-to-day tasks. So Anyway, well, I'm so glad that you're here, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you enjoy doing, any hobbies? Sure. So um, my name's Catherine Sterling. Uh, some people, you know, call me Kathy. Some people call me Cat. You know, I'm easy going with my name. Uh, I've been in OT for 25 years. Um, I am from a little bitty small town near Lubbock, Texas. I'm sure not a lot of people have heard of it. Um but I was introduced to the field of occupational therapy through a uh, our youth director at church. She was a student at Texas Tech, and she was just kind of telling us about different field choices for us kids at the church. And I looked into OT, and I really fell in love with it. So my big sister lived in San Antonio at the time, and I wanted to get out of West Texas, just do something different. So I moved down to San Antonio to be with, to live with my sister and I uh, enrolled in UTSA and I did a lot of uh, volunteer work and um, observation hours uh, started at a Riosa, which is now Health South or now Encompass, I mean, uh, in rehab and it had just opened back when I was a student there. This was in 1993. Um, so I did all that and uh, I applied to OT school in 1996 and then got accepted and uh, hit the ground running. I can't believe it's been 25 years I've been doing this already. Um, and then let's see, I've worked pretty much as an OT in all different settings, adult, pediatrics, inpatient rehab, acute care, outpatient, school districts, you name it, I've done it. And you mentioned to me before you did home health as well, right? At some point, mm-hmm. home, oh, okay. health, Got it. home health, okay. adults, um, home health, adults and uh, home health pediatrics. And actually that when I was doing home health, that's what kind of got me interested in kind of uh, the differences I would see um, in terms of access to health care. And, you know, some people had, you know, more uh, access privilege for lack of a better word or knowledge or whatever. And so I would see the discrepancies um, with people and how their healthcare was delivered and what people knew and what they didn't know. And so I became real interested in kind of more of the community and public health sort of thing. And so that prompted me to go to uh, graduate school in 2010. And I got my graduate degree in public administration with a focus on nonprofit management So that kind of leads me into just 
other hobbies of mine. I love the nonprofit sector. I love volunteering for nonprofits. Um, I'm on the board of directors for Holotus Humane Society. And I'm also currently now as an OT doing some work with a local nonprofit group here in town called Connectability. So um, helping people who are underinsured or have no health insurance. Connectability is a real, um, they're an amazing group that help people get connected to different services, whatever they are, OTPT, home modifications, DME, support groups, all that stuff. And DME is durable medical equipment. So that's yeah. like wheelchairs, walkers, that type of thing. Yeah. Well, that that's great. And I'm going to, um, I'll, I'll tease this in for a future podcast. So today we're going to focus on your professional background, but we will also have a future podcast where we dive deep into your own journey with your aging parents. Um, mm -hmm. I know we talked a little bit about that the first time we met. And so that will play, I'm sure these are two things are intertwined quite a bit. Um, but in talking today about how you see things as an occupational therapist and what kind of drew you into specifically looking at the home environment, um, was that part of your personal experience with your mom? Was that being an OT? Was that doing home health? And you kind of saw kind of how the environment was working with uh, function and ability and quality of life, or where did that come from? So I think where it started from, for me, you know, professionally, I was uh, one of my first jobs out at OT school was at the Children's Hospital of San Antonio. And at that time, I mean, I was on the inpatient, the pediatric inpatient rehab. And, you know, sometimes back in, you know, that many years ago, we were allowed to kind of go out on field trips. I actually even got into this way back, even when I was a student at the VA um, before my first job at the Children's Hospital. But going out and being able to to leave the hospital setting and go out into a patient's home and look at their home environment that started for me early on and then um then as changes occurred in inpatient rehab you know we, we really didn't weren't able to have that luxury anymore but we would try to go off of patient or parent uh, report about home environment and try to simulate that the best we could in an ot session um but then as I started branching out more um, and as I started picking up work in home health, then I was encountered with the home environment in real time. And so um, I think one of the most vivid memories I have of it is I had this one kiddo that uh, was discharged home from an acute hospital stay and that because that kid didn't have a lot of resources, um, no health insurance at that time. Uh, he was an, unfortunately a heroin overdose and I think he was 16 and they were discharged home from the trauma unit at university hospital. And they just, you know, the, um, they just did the best they could with the home that they lived in, which was a basically a little one bedroom area that was attached to a house that they had walled off. And, you know, they had uh, DME, durable medical equipment delivered there, a hospital bed, a shower chair and all that stuff. But when I showed up that day, I thought, well, you could barely even walk in the home. And 
I mean, literally there was maybe about six inches of room on each side of the hospital bed and, and forget about trying to get the, the patient into the bathroom for a shower. And so that's when I kind of started getting more, um, I also put on my advocate hat, if you will, and reached out to the, the, my, the medical director at the children's hospital and my current boss at that time. And we were able to get him admitted for an inpatient rehab stay, which allowed the mother to get hooked up with case management there. And then, you know, he had some rehab. He had, he was, when he, I think that kid got part of a baclofen trial and helped with his muscle tone and his ability to even just kind of get more because he was pretty much bed bound before. And so there was that physical piece that they helped him through inpatient rehab all the while working on a better, getting him a better home environment and better DME. So that's, I always go back to that example of how I got into wanting to be more involved in the home modification piece, the home accessibility and safety piece of it. So that you bring up a a lot of good points. And I, I think it would be important to kind of go back and as we talk to people about kind of navigating life with aging parents, there is a big disconnect between the healthcare professionals participating in the parent's life and the home environment and knowledge thereof, right? So there's only a select few types of medical professionals that end up going into the home. And these are almost primarily through home health services. And that would be a nurse, uh, sometimes a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, maybe a case manager, but these are on the tail end of an episode. So if somebody goes in, say for a hip fracture and they um, go to the hospital, get stabilized, they go to inpatient rehab because they have some other medical things going on and they're about to go into the home, it's, it's not uncommon that nobody's actually seen the house. There might be an occupational therapist involved that asked a lot of questions, maybe even got some pictures, like that would be next level but there isn't um, a lot of insurance support or, or covered support for the time and effort it would take for an occupational therapist to go into the home and do a full assessment. And so that creates this, this chasm when you're rehabbing somebody in an environment in which they're never, they're not going to live. Right. And so we have very controlled environments in the hospital and in rehab, we typically have, you know, ADA style bathrooms and large hallways and doorways and all that. And so you can simulate it, but um, I think one of the important things for people to think about is the more they can advocate or bring that information up, whether it's a primary care provider in a clinic or in the hospital and, and be proactive about saying, look, the bathroom door is 27 inches wide. You know, um, it may not be that anybody's going to prompt them in the course of that uh, hospital stay to actually understand that part of it. And so I remember way back, this would have been 15, 20 years ago, um, that was right when we started getting smartphones and then patients would text photos of their Mm -hmm. home. And I remember I was with a a physician, you and I both know who at the time was already in his seventies. And he said, oh my God, I've never seen digital photos of a home before. (laughs) I've always had to like kind of imagine it. Um, And so I remember that, you know, that was a long time ago. I think there may be just an assumption that the medical care team knows more than they do about the home environment. And the time in which that interaction is occurring is usually after the discharge. 
when you have the home health team coming out and I bless home health teams. They have a very hard time yes. interacting with people earlier in the medical process. So trying to get a hold of the inpatient doctor, almost yes. impossible. Maybe you get a hold of a primary care doctor if they're like really engaged and available, but man, they have a heck of a time. And so even if they identify something in the environment, oh, this would be great. The poor team has to go and try to track somebody down to get that ordered and funded. And and so you kind of mentioned that the nonprofit support is a lot more flexible because they don't need a lot of, you know, authorizations and so forth. But um, so let's talk about this. So when you walk into a, an environment, so we'll put this in the context of um, if somebody had an aging parent and they wanted you to come and look at their existing space, their parent is in a rehab unit and is disabled or coming home with maybe debility. Let's do just like um, they're going to have uh, cardiac or pulmonary issues. Maybe they had a heart attack and they have really, really low energy levels and slowed mobility. When you're walking into a room, what are the, th like, how do you see it as an occupational therapist? Do you, do you go like square foot by square foot? Do you think about function? Do you think about, um, like the, the, the different areas of the room? Like, how do you approach it? So I kind of first approach it by, I guess I would say function, but I kind of approach it as, um, what do these people do, uh, in their day-to-day, -day, you know, I, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I, I look at it and I ask questions about where does this person spend most of their time? Um, are they in the kitchen? Do they still cook or do they like to go outside? I kind of approach it as just what does the person do the most in in their home and go from there. I try to set a list of priorities. So um, if a person is, let's just say, likes to go outside a lot, I always like to make sure, well, can they go out the back door? Because everybody seems to, a lot of the time, yes, it's important to get in and out of the house safely, but what about other areas of the home that they want to enjoy? So do they want to go outside? Well, is there a safe entry and exit to the backyard? Or um, do they, again, like to be in the kitchen? Well, I mean, can they get in the kitchen or do they have things? Can they reach all the cabinets that they need to reach? Um, also, what is the flooring like inside the home? Is there a lot of carpet or uneven surfaces that, you know, they can navigate through their home safely without a lot of uh, energy exertion. Um, and then of course, looking at the bathroom um, because we all use our bathrooms for toileting and for showering and things like that. But I try to go, um, I try to prioritize it by what's the most meaningful to what's going to be the most meaningful to that patient once they get home. Yeah. And I like um, when you talked about really understanding the percentage of time. And so when I think about design and you have somebody who spends a lot of time in bed or in a chair, you know, really focusing on the functionality of that space where the outlets are. Um, when my grandmother, uh, when we first built the house and she moved in, she had to turn her head to the left to see the television. And I was so proud of myself because we had put the, 
outlet up a little bit higher, kind of the mid middle part of the wall so that there wouldn't be all these cords and, and got a nice TV in there. And I remember her saying, I, I just can't watch it. It, it, I, I just, the, the posture of my neck at, you know, it hurts too much. And so we uh, traded, we took all that down and ended up putting a, like a, a, a TV that's on a swivel, almost like you'd see in a hospital where uh -huh. it has a, a, an articulating arm that comes out and, and it's a much smaller, cheaper TV. And she loves that thing. She, and because it can move around, she can go sit uh, at the bedside, you know, there's just a table there and eat and the TV is easy to move. And so, you know, I was thinking too fancy for what that function really needed to be, which was really something more flexible. And so I think of the, the sort of quality of life around where you spend all that time and then the bathroom, hopefully people aren't spending 80% of their time in the bathroom, right. but I guess it happens. But but the bathroom is a safety issue. It's like make the bathroom safe and everything else, in, I mean, enjoyable. And um, the number of safety issues that we see in bathrooms and people can ask, you know, why do we spend so much time uh, harping on the bathroom design? And that's where the falls are. Right. That's where most of the injuries are. So can you talk a little bit yeah. more about bathroom design specifically? So I just kind of encountered this uh, recently. So um, bathroom design, yeah, obviously, um, looking at the entryway into the to bath into the bathroom because, yes, there's transport chair options, but um, but still, I always want to make sure it's at least you know wide enough to accommodate a wheelchair, you know, first and foremost, getting into a bathroom by a wheelchair, not even a, a transport chair or using a walker, just making sure it's wide enough for a wheelchair. And then once inside the bathroom, I'm looking at um, navigation space. So is there enough turning radius? Because at this time, I'm always kind of thinking of, well, you know, of course, it depends on the level of function of the patient. But if they're going to need, um, let's just say, a, a, a transfer system, is there enough uh, space inside the bathroom to turn a, a bath chair around or turn a wheelchair around? Um, so that turning radius space. Um, I look at the lighting. I look at the flooring. Um, you know, I've been in some bathrooms that still have carpet in them. Um, so I look at threshold heights if if they do have a, a stall shower um I'll look at where the toilet is um you know just making sure again there's space around the toilet to put up grab bars or um some kind of uh, transfer pole or so again I'm just kind of taking in the whole space and thinking number one is it safe and then two what's the usability of the space and can and then I think I'm a lot of times I'm looking at well can we make do with what's here or does all of this have to come out um so that recent thing I encountered was actually in a trailer home in a trailer house and it, uh, the gentleman had suffered an, a cardiac arrest on the job and had an anoxic brain injury because there was some amount of time before 911 was even called. So he had a terrible anoxic brain injury and had to be, and he's a big man over six foot tall and he needed a 
a tilt and space wheelchair, which then again, he needed a tilt and space bath system. Can you talk about what that is? A, a tilt and space bath system. A uh, wheelchair, sorry. A wheelchair, a tilt and space wheelchair. Um, So tilt and space wheelchairs are ones that when when someone, for example, might not be able to sit all the way fully upright because they don't have head and neck control or they don't have control of their own trunk. Um, you That's an example where you would need to put the chair a little bit tilted, not just the back reclining, but think about a 90 degree box that you're tilting on to a corner. So his whole body could tilt back um, to give him that neck support, head support, trunk support. It's also those tilt and space chairs are also designed to help get pressure off of someone's bottom if they don't have the ability to stand up and, and get pressure off their their back, their spine, their hips, their glutes. Um, so it's for that reason. Also, maybe for circulation reasons to get their kind of legs elevated. Um, so that's why that particular gentleman needed that kind of chair. He didn't have the, enough mobility or strength to move his own body around in his chair. So he needed a caregiver to put him in a tilt position throughout the day in different uh, degrees of tilt. And so because of that, also, they make bath chairs that can kind of do the same. So, and it takes up a lot of space when you think about a chair being reclined, he needed more space to be able to turn around in a bathroom versus just turning around, sitting fully upright at 90 degrees. And if you look at, um, talking about bathroom designs, if you look at a set of uh, drawings or architect plans, they'll usually put a circle that has about a five foot diameter on it. And then they consider that bathroom to have a turning space. I know that doesn't if you have a, lar a large person in a tilt in space, that might not even still be enough. I mean, it won't be enough room, but um, yeah, the idea of like a standard wheelchair or something like that. Um, but I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is it's easy to say, okay, we could rip everything out. We've got an unlimited budget. We could just rebuild this whole thing and make it easy. But you have a history of working within a lot of, you know, significant constraints and there isn't, uh, maybe, you know, in the veteran system, there, there is good funding for this, but outside the veteran system, there isn't really good, reliable, robust funding to modify, uh, these bathrooms for people that find like he was, he was at work. He was, I presume healthy enough to be at work. And then this happens. And so, um, what are some of the crazy things you've had to do, uh, specifically in the bathroom design to help accommodate a patient? So some things just to make do. Um, so some of the crazier things I've had to do is uh, there's been patients, no matter what we, we came up with, it wasn't working. So we had to come up with ways to bathe them outside of the bathroom. Um, so taking, for example, uh, a blow up tub or a, uh, you know, the little metal portable, like, oh gosh, you get them at a, oh, that feed store, you know, the metal. Oh, like a trough. Trough, thank you. Can't yes. think of the word. Um, and then taking uh, garden hoses, um, running a garden hose from a sink to, and putting a spray, like, the, you know, the adapters you can get at Home Depot. Yes. I've done, hooked a hose up 
to a sink, ran it into a room that has bigger space and put a patient on a, a bath, just a regular old uh, tub bench or shower seat and uh, rigged up a PVC pipe with shower curtains so we don't get water everywhere and then use a um, water pump to run and hook the water hose up to a water pump and literally have that drain back into a sink. That's, That's why I love occupational therapists. You guys, you don't quit. You've got to figure it out, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's something you teach. You mean, obviously you set it up and the family can continue that. Um, and there's been know. some families I've encountered too, where they've come up with their own little things. I mean, I had a patient one time, of course, when it was warm and they lived out on some acreage, so they didn't have any nosy neighbors and they went outside on their back patio and bathed their family member when it was warm outside only in the summer. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, there's probably some limitations <laughs> yes. with that approach. Yeah, because they were kind of at a loss and that's because there was no funding and there was no other way that they felt to do it. <laughs> well, and it's not uncommon for, for people that are able to do sponge baths and right. that's kind of my story, right? That's what got me so motivated to bring my grandmother to live with us because she was doing sponge baths at her previous um, house or the home she was living in with my aunt. And you can only do that for so long. I mean, it, right. there's nothing that beats a really good shower. I know. Um, I saw a patient last week that I had never, I don't even know. I, I don't know if you've come across this, but he was in the hospital for a long time. And if you're, if you know anything, hospitals are not good about showering patients. It's nope. the <laughs> lowest on the totem pole, but these patients are start to feel so gross. You know, they have tape, you know, over their IVs and it's just, kind of uh, really, really challenging. Anyway, so he showed me this invention, which was a shower cap that had dry shampoo inside of it. And you put it over your hair and you rub your own head. And it said it was like a shower and a cap. And he took, he said, I don't think it works at all. But I, what I want is a shower, not a shower and a cap. And I remember thinking, you know, we've really tried to um, uh, simplify some of this, but but taking a shower is is a, a big movement. I mean, you have to get somebody into a water source safely yeah. and have them yeah. dry off and so forth. And so, um, I was hoping those don't become the a popular thing, but, but yeah, so showering is a big one. Um, why, uh, using the restroom and going or, or toileting is another big one. Now that's a little bit easier, right? Because you can always have a three in one next or a bedside commode. I'm sorry, a, a bedside commode or something that somebody could use, but even that can get a little difficult, right? Yes, um, that can get difficult. And, and again, I have a current patient, a, a lady right now with MS, and she she has a a bedside commode that she keeps in in her bath in in her bedroom. I'm sorry, she keeps a bedside commode in her bedroom, and it it's it is starting to the plastic, you know, which I never thought about this before. If you use one of those as your only pretty much commode that's all her she has a simple request is to get the the plastic basin uh replacements for that three and one i mean for that bedside commode because you know i guess the waste material is breaking down the plastic and i never even thought that i just learned about that i never even thought about that before until two weeks ago <laughs> right so. right yeah and um and for patients that we can't get um 
using something like that. And when you go through, say, using adult diapers or Depends, those are also extremely expensive, mm-hmm. um, especially if they're changed three, four, five, six times a day. Yes. Um, and so there's some cost savings too, if you can get um, get that in place. And then something I've already talked about several times in the podcast, people are going to think I'm preoccupied with it, but the mm-hmm. use of a bidet where possible. Um, I had a patient that I had talked about uh, using a bidet and then he left and came back to the rehab place uh, after he had surgery. And he said, oh my God, where was this bidet my entire life? I wish somebody had told me about it 10 years ago. And he he's a large man. And he's like, I was having so much trouble just managing um, you know, that, that task and the bidet takes care of so many things. And so he uh, came into the the rehab setting and brought the bidet with him, had his oh. son install it in his, uh, in the toilet, in his room. <laughs> so, so that was the first time I've ever seen that, but, but there are other little, you know, less expensive type things you can do. Any other creative things you can think of that you've had to do or other tricks of the trade? Well, so I, I, you know, we can touch on this more, you know, later but I this I just thought about with my own mother um so when before she passed away and I had her staying with me for a bit I um she I thought well let's just try I was doing a lot of research on because you know at the time which I still think it's kind of on trend the whole tiny home tiny house living thing Uh and I was reading more about composting toilets so that's what I did I um got it I bought a composting toilet which it's one cheap thing off was a thousand dollars but to me it was worth every penny because I had a, a friend of mine who does contracting work and we mounted that composting toilet onto the floor to the wood and then put grab bars around it and that particular composting toilet um it the trick behind it is it's got a separate uh container for uh urine number one and then a separate one for number two and that's what makes it not smell and even I didn't even have to hook up the exhaust fan to it and it stayed clean and it was safe and it looked like just a regular toilet and so that was kind of another trick of the trade those composting toilets are kind of cool (laughs) tell me more about that so so this was in, in a regular plumbing system so no, so I, we couldn't, it was going to cost, I couldn't believe it. I was going to run. So I converted my garage to an, a little apartment for my mom and I was going to run plumbing out there, but I think I got a quote for $30,000 just to run plumbing for one toilet. And I thought, okay, we're not going to do that. So that's when I read about the composting toilet. And as long as you can mount it, onto a floor surface. Uh, sorry about that. As long as you can mount it safely onto a floor surface, um, again, these are installed in RVs, tiny homes, whatever, um, little apartments. Um, but yeah, we we installed it and um, yeah, it just, it worked wonderfully. Um, I only had to empty the urine container part out just a couple times a week and and then it, it snaps right back into place with an O-ring. And um, then the number two part, you just, it has its own door that you open, a lever you push, and and then you just turn the, the handle for the composting part um, that you put peat moss in the bottom. And it, yeah, it just, 
was a game changer for us. And so how much um, maintenance did it require? You said a couple times a week? Just a couple of times a week to clean the urine part, the little tank. Right. Um, the composting, um, I only did that, uh, every, let's see, I did that probably a couple of times, uh, once every three months or something like that. Really? That's it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're always going to learn something on this podcast. This is going to be compo- a composting toilet. So I'm Googling it as you're speaking and I can see, um, very, very interesting. Yeah, That is awesome. And that would be really great because again, you know, you were quoted that much for plumbing, which is not, you know, extremely expensive, but that's probably, I mean, that's what it runs. Um, and if your only additional space available to renovate is a garage, I mean, people don't normally have plumbing in their garage. So no. Oh, that is great. Yeah. It worked yeah. wonderful. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, outside of the bathroom, thinking of the kitchen or the bedroom, any other tips or tricks that you have or anything else that you felt like has worked really well? Um, so for the kitchen, just, um, kind of helping people kind of walk through, uh, that whole energy conservation activity analysis thing that got drilled to us in OT school about, um, where to keep things uh kind of doing some kitchen reorganization keeping most used items in reach or in the lower cabinets um keeping things decluttered having a uh, good lighting um through the kitchen and then other areas of the home again uh, you know if possible talking about getting, you know, removing carpet and putting some different flooring to help if someone's still able to um, wheel their own wheelchair or use their feet to move from one room to the other. Having carpet makes that more difficult. Of course, um, good lighting uh, or automatic lighting. Um, If they need to get up in the middle of the night to use the, the restroom or go out into the kitchen to get a drink of water or things like that just having um well-lit areas at night and just anything if people I've done this a lot too uh for for people interested in you know are still able-bodied enough to do their own cleaning keeping kind of a little mini cleaning supply kit in each room kind of in a drawer in a cabinet and yeah just kind of having little little kits set up um in each room that they use to kind of uh, lower the amount of energy needed to go back and forth within the house. And the reason, uh, if you're not familiar with, with energy conservation, of course we want people using and their muscles and moving them as much as possible, but there are a lot of conditions where they only have so many energy packets <laughs> to, yeah. to use each day. And if you want to maintain function, you want the layout, the organization, everything about the home or the space to be, as intuitive and easy as possible. So if they're looking for a pair of scissors, which I'm always looking for scissors. If anybody wants to buy me something for Christmas, I need like a 12 pack of scissors. Um, but it's just like, like they, they the scissors need to live in one place mm-hmm. and they need to always be there. And so that you don't have somebody that has a COPD exacerbation going from drawer to drawer, cabinet to cabinet to find the scissors to open their, you know, a package to eat lunch or something. So you want it to be, um, obvious and, and, you know, well-organized. And so we're just trying to, to take the tasks that have to be done 
and conserve energy to do the ones that are the most functional, highest quality of life, and not somebody, again, just sort of sorting through things or having to go from one location to another. Um, that's really kind of the basics of energy conservation, um, you know, for, for people that, that, again, have very limited energy. Mm -hmm. So this is this has been really interesting. I appreciate you walking us through these things. I think people are going to be Googling lots of different things after this, <laughs> this discussion. Um, I know at least for people here in San Antonio, you do have a service where you can go in and uh, do a custom assessment of these spaces. Can you talk a little bit more about that and where people could find you? Sure. So I I have my own company. It's called At Home Occupational Therapy Services. Um, so you can just my website which is still currently under construction but it's at home txot.com or just google katherine sterling at home occupational therapy and it'll come up um so yeah my business is uh i'm the the focus of my business or what i specialize in is you know home safety and accessibility evaluations fall prevention preventative care also, um, skilled OT intervention in the home um, for anyone who's been in the hospital recently or just discharged from a rehab unit that maybe they've done some home health, but they still want to continue on service. If, if a patient has become kind of too high level for home health or graduated from home health, I can kind of step in. Basically what it is, it's mobile outpatient. So it would be like if you want to uh, go get outpatient somewhere, but you don't necessarily want to go to a clinic to get OT services, I can come and do OT in your home all the while looking at your home safety and accessibility and safety, fall prevention, preventative care, all that stuff in a one-stop shop, <laughs> if you will. Well, it's a shame that it, you're just here in San Antonio because I feel like the, you'd need a thousand of those services, you know, in every jurisdiction in the, in the world. I mean, that's that's a an incredible background and expertise brought into the home uh, to, to look at it that way. So yeah. that is awesome. And I'll put that information in the show notes. Um, okay. And yeah, that this has been really exciting. And I look forward to speaking to you about your journey with your mom and we'd love to have you back. Does that sound like a good plan? Sounds perfect to me. All right. Thanks, Catherine. I'll talk to you soon. Hey everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.